Welcome back to $100 Plus Mileage, the podcast about New Hampshire legislation that might not make the news, but still could impact you. Last year, we talked about everything from home distilling to delivery robots. With the legislature coming back in session in 2022, we're back for a second season too. Each week, we'll highlight one of the roughly 1,000 bills making its way through the New Hampshire legislature, give you the unbiased facts, pros and cons, and tell you about how to make your voice heard and get involved in the New Hampshire democratic process. I'm Anna Brown, Director of Research and Analysis for Citizens Count. And I'm Mike Dunbar, Content Editor for Citizens Count. Anna, I know we only cover one bill each episode, but there are already so many 2022 bills I have questions about. Take, for example, HB 1095, which requires the state to make rules about fresh condiments at hot dog stands like sauerkraut and beans. What is going on with hot dog stands in our state? I'm more curious about HB 1320, which would repeal the prohibition against displaying a dead human body for longer than 24 hours unless the body is properly embalmed. I had no idea that was even a law, and I really hope this bill has something to do with Viking burials. My family is Swedish, so I'm totally down with the idea of having my body pushed out to sea on a flaming boat. Okay, good to know, good to know. Well, we're getting ahead of ourselves, though. The House and Senate have yet to vote on dozens of 2021 bills that they kept for work over the summer and fall. Our most devoted fans may recall our episode last year that highlighted some of these quote-unquote retained bills. Over the past few months, there were committee work sessions, some public hearings, and even a few last-minute amendments that add up to some really big legislative changes. The House has scheduled a three-day voting marathon for these bills on January 5th, 6th, and 7th. With so many significant bills packed into just three days, we decided to vote this episode to an explanation of some of the most controversial bills coming up for a vote. And that does go against our tradition of highlighting lesser-known legislation— but it very much supports our mission of helping listeners understand the legislative process in New Hampshire. A few of the bills we're talking about today were completely rewritten over the summer, so it might seem like they're coming out of left field. It's true, and uh, the first bill we're talking about today is one of those total rewrites. So it's HB 255, uh, which was originally intended to limit liability related to COVID-19. The majority of a House committee... Uh, is recommending a rewrite that instead blocks any business or organization from mandating the COVID-19 vaccine. The new version of HB 255 is aimed at uh, President Biden's federal vaccine mandate. Now, you may recall Biden's vaccine mandate didn't exist until September, so rewriting a 2021 bill was the fastest way for the legislature to respond one way or the other. It's worth noting that there are many, many other 2022 bills related to vaccines that will get a vote in the coming year. HB 255 is significant because it's the legislature's first run at Biden's executive actions on vaccines. Writing in support of HB 255, Representative Rick Ladd said, this unnecessary mandate is trampling state powers and imposing new burdens on employers when they can least afford it, an infringement on personal rights and making life harder for the unvaccinated who want to work in an economy with already too few workers. If HB 255 becomes law, though, businesses and organizations will have to choose between following state law or federal law and then face the consequences of violating one or the other. In the case of federal contractors and healthcare providers, defying the federal vaccine mandate could result in a loss of a lot of federal money. 
Yeah, so Governor Kristen Nunu also supports the right of employers to mandate vaccines if they choose. For example, some healthcare providers in New Hampshire chose to mandate the COVID-19 vaccine for staff before any federal mandate for the safety of their patients. So even if it passes, HB 255 could get vetoed and the legislature might not have enough votes to override Sununu. Meanwhile, there are a few lawsuits related to Biden's vaccine orders, and those are waking their way through the federal court system. Okay, quick sidebar. Can committees just rewrite bills however they want, or are there limits? Well, yes and no. So first of all, a committee can only recommend the full House or Senate pass an amendment that rewrites a bill. The body of the legislature, the full House or Senate, not just committee members, decides on the final language of a bill. That being said, the legislature usually just goes along with whatever the committee recommends. And there's also House and Senate rules that prohibit, quote-unquote, non-germane amendments, which is an an amendment that's not really closely related to the bill's original subject. But once again, judging what is germane or not is subjective. And in my time with Citizens Count, I've seen many bills get amendments that honestly have me scratching my head. They seem like a little bit of a stretch of that rule. Interesting, interesting. All right, well, the next bill we have on our list is another one of these rewrites, The House Judiciary Committee rewrote HB 622 to repeal the requirement to perform an obstetric ultrasound before any abortion. As a reminder for listeners, last summer, Governor Sununu signed a state budget package that included a new ban on abortion after 24 weeks with very limited exceptions. And the ban included a requirement for healthcare providers to perform a transvaginal ultrasound before any abortion to verify whether it was under 24 weeks or not. Pro-choice advocates were quick to condemn the ultrasound requirement as an unnecessary medical intrusion and financial burden. I'm a little surprised, though, the legislature is considering a repeal already after passing this just a few months ago. I think there's some pressure related to Governor Sununu because he's been the subject of a lot of attack ads since he signed these abortion restrictions in the budget. He says he is pro-choice even though he signed that 24-week ban. And so he has also said he is open to repealing this ultrasound requirement. There might be just enough Republicans who agree with Sununu to pass this repeal. Representative Joe Alexander, the lone Republican on the Judiciary Committee who voted to repeal the ultrasound requirement, said, quote, I'm in favor of removing the ultrasound requirement because it is a medical procedure that already happens. By removing that, we are able to keep the ban in place while also addressing some concerns that were in HB2. HB2 would be part of that budget package. So it remains to be seen how many Republicans will agree with Rep. Alexander. On behalf of the other Republicans on the Judiciary Committee, Rep. Kurt Welper wrote, quote-unquote, removing the ultrasound requirement prior to an abortion of a baby even close to the 24-week threshold of the law creates an immediate and substantial risk to the mother's health. Just to clarify, repealing the ultrasound requirement wouldn't prevent doctors from choosing that transvaginal ultrasound. This bill would just get rid of the mandate. Abortion is another uh, issue with several 2022 bills coming down the pike, isn't that right? Oh, yeah. We, we could end up talking about some of those bills on this coming season. Sure. Okay. Well, next on our list is HB 607, and it's a little bit tricky to understand. First, we have to talk about the Education Freedom Account Program the legislature passed last year. The Education Freedom Account Program lets students apply to spend their per-pupil share of the state's education funding on private or homeschool expenses. HB 607 would create a similar parallel program that allows students to apply for some of their share of local 
not state, but local education funding. And kind of a reminder to our listeners about how the school funding works in general. In New Hampshire, each school district gets a set amount of funding from the state, and then towns and cities decide how much more they need to commit to schools. Local school funding and the underlying property taxes vary a lot from district to district. So a local education freedom account scholarship could be really different from one town to another. Student in one town might be eligible for a local scholarship of just a couple thousand bucks, but a student from a wealthier district could see something near 10 grand. These bills always make me think of my dad. I went to Catholic school growing up and it drove him crazy having to pay taxes and tuition. He was always kind of that classic dad when it came to spending money like that. Of course, it's a little late for him now to benefit from this, but anyway... There are two other significant pieces to HB 607. First of all, 60% of a school district would have to vote in favor of participating in the program for it to begin. Uh, also, there would be no family income gap for student or cap, excuse me, for students to participate. The current education freedom account program does have a cap, however. Yeah, and there are a lot more nitty-gritty details to HB 607, but if you're really boiling down the pro and con arguments, it's about whether students should have access to taxpayer dollars for private, and as you meant it, potentially religious, or homeschooling. So according to supporters, this is empowering students to seek out the education that's best for them, but opponents say this is a voucher-like program, it's going to radically defund schools and could potentially ratchet up your local property taxes. And it is worth noting that right now, this rewritten bill does not have a fiscal note explaining its overall financial impact at the state and local level. So that was also a concern that came up with the statewide education freedom accounts that just passed because the original fiscal note estimate of how many kids would sign up was really low compared to what ultimately happened. And if off the top of my head, it was it was millions of dollars of difference. I don't remember the exact number. So that's another question here is what's this financial impact really going to look like? Right. Well, we're trying to fit a lot into just one episode, but let's hit one more issue. Dun, 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 redistricting. This is definitely a hot topic, but it's also one that can be hard to wrap your head around. So let's break it down a little bit. This is special because it happens only once every 10 years after the U.S. Census. So New Hampshire, like every other state, has to redraw its electoral maps to ensure each district covers roughly the same number of people. So in New Hampshire, it goes through pretty much a regular legislative process as opposed to a special independent committee or anything like that. That's a whole other issue we could talk about in another episode, but here's where we're at. So committee worked over the summer and fall on what they thought the maps should look like for the state house and the U.S. House of Representatives districts. And so the full house is going to vote on those in January. The state Senate and executive council maps are still in progress. Republicans are supporting a redrawn U.S. congressional map that places a majority of right-leaning voters in the first district and a majority of left-leaning voters in the second district. Several seacoast towns and cities would move from the first district to the second district, which has historically covered western and northern New Hampshire. When presenting the redrawn congressional map, Republican legislators said it was an attempt to bring more towns and cities along the Massachusetts border together under the first district. And the redrawn map's first and second district are almost identical in population size, which is pretty impressive. Other Republicans, such as Representative Bob Lynn, admitted that, quote-unquote, political considerations 
namely consolidating Republican Party voters, was a factor in their decision. Right. So there are political considerations, and then there's gerrymandering. A lot of Democrat and even some Republicans say that the redrawn congressional maps go too far. Former Republican congressional candidate Matt Mayberry wrote, to suddenly move Dover, Rochester, and Summersworth in with the community of Nashua and Littleton is far-fetched and blatantly political. To create a quote-unquote red district and a blue district reflects the designers of this map's innate distrust of the people of New Hampshire, end quote. Yeah, I mean, those are those were pretty intense fighting words from a former Republican mm-hmm. congressional candidate and also remains to be seen how Governor Sununu is responding to these maps one way or another. Meanwhile, the redrawn state representative districts have garnered a lot less attention than those congressional maps, but I think they'll generate just as much floor debate. So New Hampshire has a constitutional requirement that every town or ward with sufficient population gets its own district for the state house. But every legislator has to represent roughly the same number of people, so you can't just give each of New Hampshire's 234 cities in town one representative and call it a day. Some towns and wards are pulled together under the same district, and some districts may include more voters than other within a certain legal margin. This year, Democrats argue that in several cases, the Republican-supported maps could give more towns their own unique representatives. Republicans argue that would result in too much variation in district size. There is also debate over whether Manchester is entitled to 32 or 33 representatives. All right. Any redrawn maps that do pass the House have to go through the Senate. Then Governor Sununu, which I said, you know, he hasn't said anything either way, so we don't really know if he would sign or veto. But even if he does sign it, redistricting bills often result in lawsuits. So this is just the beginning of the redistricting road. Oh boy, Anna, I feel like this is going to be an intense legislative session. Just this episode was intense. It's so much more entertaining to talk about the legislature when they're debating things like chicken trespassing and fish pedicures. Oh yeah, I'm totally emotionally exhausted from this episode. And the session hasn't even started yet. Well, we've squeezed a lot of complex bills into this one episode, but we still have time for a fun little closing segment, right? It's time for Only in New Hampshire. Anna, what fun New Hampshire fact do you have for us today? Okay, I tied this one to current events. I'm very proud of myself. Due to COVID-19, New Hampshire's representatives will be voting on all these bills in January at the Doubletree Expo Center in Manchester, New Hampshire. First, personal story. I love the Doubletree Expo Center in Manchester because that is also where I have had my amateur MMA fights. Mm. It's a very multi-purpose expo center. Also where my mother goes for her favorite quilt shows. I just, (laughs) this is just turning into a free advertisement for them. You want MMA, you want quilts, you want a spa, you want the state legislature, you got it all here in the Queen City. But I'm not the only one who is entertained by this. It turns out this will fulfill the long-lost dream of some long-departed Manchester officials who lobbied to move the state capital to Manchester twice. Mm. So in 1863 and 1909, the city of Manchester offered at least half a million dollars to build a new capital building in the Queen City, but legislators turned them down both times. Interesting, interesting. Uh, and apparently legislat- legislators also considered Salisbury and Hopkinton for the state capital at one point or another. Yes, and I, and I think no, no offense against Salisbury and Hopkinton, but I feel like, 
you could sort of see Manchester, big central, all the highways coming in. These days, I don't know what was going on way back in the 19th century, but Salisbury and Hopkinton did not obviously become bustling transportation centers. Although I do love the Hopkinton Fair. I love the Hopkinton Fair. So, you know, maybe... We maybe I'm I'm selling them short. Maybe that's really where our capital should have ended up. But for now, I just have to cheer on my home city of Manchester. <laughs> my my gut tells me that Concord is still safe in the long run, but who knows? Who knows? Well, we'll have to see what happens if COVID nineteen continues. They were at the Bedford Sportsplex. They were at the the UNH parking lot in Durham. Now True. they're in Manchester. Maybe they should just do a tour of the state. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe they Road should do show. it on a, on a ski slope sometime, and then you can, as you there ski you down the slope, you can just like ski into whether you're voting nay, yay or nay. That would be fine. This is getting off. This is this is going off the rails, Anna. A little We're bit. All right. Well, let's, let's wrap this up <laughs> for our season premiere. You can find more information and episodes at citizenscount.org. We'd also like to thank Franklin Pierce University for producing and the Granite State News Collaborative for hosting the podcast. Our theme music is composed by the one and only Mike Dunbar. Lastly, we thank you for giving us a listen and thinking about how you can be a part of what makes New Hampshire by the people, for the people. <laughs>